0: Last summer, I got back into swimming laps for a few weeks after having been away from swimming for, for a number of years. And the very first time I was back in the pool, I swam three laps, stopped out of utter exhaustion, and checked my heart rate. And generally, you can, you can find your heart rate by uh, counting your pulse, counting the heartbeats that you have within a six second time frame. Well, I. Uh, and so if you have 14 beats in that six-second time frame, well, that's a heart uh, rate of 140. I was able to count to 18 in that six-second span, which, which meant 180 beats a minute. My heart rate was racing. And I'd only done three laps, which was emblematic of just how out of swim shape I truly was. Of course, if you'd been standing next to the pool and, and, and looking at me, you wouldn't have thought a thing. You, you'd, you'd think everything looks pretty quiet and uneventful, just a guy standing at the side of the pool. You really would have to get close enough to press into my pulse to realize just how much life was racing through me. In many ways, the scene in Exodus chapter 1 appears to have no pulse God has never mentioned my name. There certainly appears to be not much God movement at all. Oppositely, what we have, you heard, is this Egyptian king, this pharaoh, who deeply fears this foreign group of Israelites as they're growing larger and larger. And so, as you heard in the reading, a shrewd plan of control is made. The king's fear is concretized into an expansive infrastructure of slavery in which taskmasters are set over Israelites who are given to do brick-and-mortar labor and work in the fields. Twice we're told the Egyptians were ruthless in the manner they imposed these tasks. The picture painted is one of, of a comprehensive, pervasive oppression, and God seems nowhere to be found. And yet, what happens when we press closer to the passage itself? We might notice that amid all the oppression and the distinct reasons for hopelessness, that three times in chapter 1, we hear these curious words. First in verse 7, the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They they, they multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became so numerous the land was filled with them. Then in verse 12, as as the oppression gets worse, we still read, they multiplied And spread. Then the same kind of verbiage in verse 20 exceedingly fruitful, multiplied, increased. Where have we heard that vocabulary? That is the vocabulary of Genesis. In the creation story, you may recall, God gives the directive to humanity to be fruitful and multiply. It's the same vocabulary used a little later in Genesis when God promises uh, Abraham that from him will come a great nation of people so numerous, they will number as greatly as the stars in the sky. In fact, one of the fundamental ways that the children of Abraham will always know that God is faithfully blessing them, faithfully present, faithfully fulfilling the promise to make them a great nation. One of the most fundamental ways the people of God will know this is when they see their people multiplying, being fruitful, becoming as numerous as the stars. And so, yes, on the surface, Exodus 1, there is nothing but ugly, systemic, persistent evil. And yet, just below the surface, the Scripture whispers, the pulse of God has not been thwarted. The pulse of God is, in fact, racing through the enslaved people of God. In the face of some of the most complex and challenging realities and evils of our time and even those things we're facing in our personal lives, do we detect that ever-faithful pulse, perhaps just below the surface? I wonder where we might point and notice the multiplying fruit of the Holy Spirit on which David Lee preached earlier this summer, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Pharaoh notices the pulse. He discerns slavery alone is not thwarting these Israelites. And so Pharaoh goes, you heard, with plan B, genocide. Surely death is the most fundamental way to stop a pulse. And yet, once more, if we press close enough to the story, we find again there remains this distinct pulse, even in the face of truly what looks like the end. In this instance, the pulse is made known through two women, Sifra. And Pua. Do you know those names? Ancient documents of, of this time period almost never mention women by name, and the men that get mentioned are, are almost always the kings and the warriors. How profound that our ancient scriptures name Sifra and Pua. And by the way, never is Pharaoh given a name. It's as if scriptures, the scriptures themselves are signaling, if you want to find the pulse of God, if you want to see where God is really raising something new up, something powerful, something beautiful, look quite far from the big names in the big places where the world will often point. Sifra and Pua are two foreign women, midwives, these women they disregard the king's law about killing all baby boys attentive more to what god has to say and instead they help these israelite women give birth and they let the boys live they they lie about this whole ordeal before authority the entire li- time their lives are very much on the line there's that pulse found only if one peers below the massive infrastructure and impossibility of slavery and the, and the, and the law of, of genocide and sees among the unlikeliest of people the stirring of God's holy movement. Since January, the officers and the staff of the church have been reading a book called Sailboat Church, Helping Your Church Rethink Its Mission and Practice, essentially it's a book that talks about what it means to be the kind of church whose sails catch the wind of the holy spirit and so the church discovers itself moving in god's way in god's direction on god's power and during our discussion times with this book at some point someone or someone's within the staff and in, and on the session and among the deacons has has someone has inevitably raised this very good very honest question in each of these settings But what if you're a sailboat and there's no wind? I mean, what about the times, the seasons, the realities in this world and even in the church where the air is just thick and stale and it's not moving? What if it appears God's not at work? There's no sense of that happening. And I think that question perhaps feels inevitable at, point, at some point in all of our lives, and maybe in particular in these recent days, again, amid a pandemic, amid cries for racial and economic justice and massive unemployment, among the profound difficulties of returning to school safely and well and all of the logistics amid a divided country, amid all of these significant challenges and at times seemingly impossible challenges, many of us, I think, are not sure where God is in all of this, let alone where a real pulse is racing with new life. I was thinking about this very question the other day while I was sitting on the couch holding Logan at that point, just three weeks old as he's sleeping in my arm, and, and I'm thinking about the this very question, I've got the, the news on in front of me. I'm also glancing occasionally over this direction at my computer, which has all my notes and different things in the church I'm trying to prioritize. All to say, I'm, I'm, I'm looking this way to see the latest of what's going on in the world. I'm, I'm looking this way to think through all the, the big plans and, and things we need to figure out. And then suddenly I feel this small movement in the cradle of my left arm. Logan's eyes are now open. I turned to gaze downward, and there is this little face gazing with full intensity back at me. He's got those tiny, wonderful baby breaths going. It struck me again. The witness of Exodus chapter 1, and truly the witness of Scripture time and again, is that if you, if you want to find the pulse of Holy Spirit life, if you want to see where and how God is moving, it often requires that we look down. Frequently, our eyes, our ears, our hearts are captive to the big names, the movers and the shakers, the big problems, the big solutions, the big momentum, the big program, And those are not unimportant. It's just that we worship a God who saved us not by coming as a great monarch, but coming as a babe born in a manger to a peasant couple in an out-of-the-way village. Talk about under the radar. We worship a God who delivers the people of God from slavery by starting with two immigrant women. What will we see if we let our gaze fall from all the places that normally capture our attention? When we drop our gaze from all of the big things and sometimes the overwhelming concerns, and we attend to what is often forgotten or seemingly powerless or hardly noticed, what do we notice? Who do we see? In our congregation? In our families? In Georgetown? in our neighborhood? Or what if we drop that that same gaze inward and look into the parts of ourselves that often feel the weakest, the most uncertain, the emptiest, the darkest? Those parts of ourselves we usually try to, to hide or not look directly at, and yet, is there a pulse there? Might we find if we look down that indeed God's power is truly perfected in Weakness. God has a thing for going through and, and toward precisely that which we or the world would think of as weak or inconsequential or secondary or foreign or broken beyond repair. The truth is that at the heart of our faith is this profound scandal. We believe in a God for whom even death itself does not stop the pulse which means most fundamentally the, the constant and ever promise of Jesus Christ is this. There is a pulse. And is it possible that pulse is racing at 180, even this very moment, just below the surface, in the most unlikeliest of directions? More, is it possible that, that the unlikely face of that pulse is the gaze of Jesus himself looking right back at us? And is there anything more life giving or pulse animating to the soul of a people than to be seen and loved? Amen.